Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. Biden's been telling Europe and the world that America is back, but do they believe it? Let's get to the bottom line. U.S. President Joe Biden is on a whirlwind tour of Europe with a packed agenda. The menu's huge, including the pandemic and half a billion vaccines for the developing world. And then there's climate, Iran, Afghanistan, NATO, cyber hackers, and the future of the Western-led order in the face of competition from China. Oh, yeah. And then there's Vladimir Putin in Russia, too. More importantly, Biden wants to signal to Europeans that the U.S. got their back after they listened to former President Donald Trump tell them they were insignificant and it would be every country for itself from now on, a.k.a. America first. But the rest of the world watched the events of January 6th when some Americans tried to overturn the results of their own election. And they still see sitting American lawmakers denying that Joe Biden won five months later. So who's to say that Washington doesn't do a total U-turn after the next election? Will America first be back? And given all this, can Biden's I'm not Trump tour restore enough trust and confidence in U.S. partnership and leadership? Fortunately, we're joined by people who have all the answers. Bruce Stokes, who heads a transatlantic research project at the German Marshall Fund called Together or Alone, and just came out with a major poll of American and European attitudes. And Matthew Rojansky, director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute, which focuses on Russia and Europe. He's considered one of America's leading experts on Russia. Matt, thanks for being here today. Let me just start uh, with, with President Biden going into Europe. What is Europe expecting from this trip? What, how are they seeing America and President Biden at this moment, from your view? Well, obviously, uh, Europeans have lingering concerns from the last four years. Uh, this was a difficult period, both in terms of uh, the pressure on the traditional transatlantic relationship, whether it was trade, whether it was uh, politics, whether it was security, uh, the message from Washington very often sounded like it's our way or the highway. Uh, there was quite a lot of zero-sum pressure and zero-sum thinking. And, of course, Biden has sought to reverse all of that. Uh, the message is not only we're back, uh, but we're back, we're going to be partners, uh, we're going to build back better, and we're going to put uh, the transatlantic relationship and America's allies and the values that we share at the very center of our approach to the wider world and the set of problems, including, of course, Russia, China, and uh, transnational challenges like climate change and the pandemic uh, that President Biden has to deal with. Now, you talk to national security and intelligence officials all over the world. You've got one of the cool jobs in Washington. I talk to them occasionally, and I do know um, that at least during uh, the Trump administration, I would even say now, that many of these players around the world in, that are looking at the security of their country, that are looking at intelligence, playing out simulations, they're really counting on America less than they used to. Will America be with these nations in their dark days is the big question. And I guess I'd like to ask you, I know you're an American, you work for the federal government, but wouldn't you doubt America after what we have just gone through? Well, look, I can, I can only speak uh, from my personal perspective. I am, I'm very convinced by President Biden's message that we are back, that is, the United States of America is back, uh, because it's not driven by politics. This is not an optics thing. Uh, this isn't about winning an election. The election is over, it's won, and it's done. Uh, this is about the American national interest. And if you, if you read uh, the critical documents uh, that the administration has put out, including the interim national security uh, strategic guidance, which is essentially a national security strategy in miniature, uh, the administration very clearly puts the importance of these central relationships in terms of the benefits to the United States. I mean, it is a self-interested approach, and that should be reassuring, because it is precisely that 
self-interest that European allies were very concerned about in the Trump administration uh, in the sense of dividing the United States from Europe. But I think quite the opposite. The Biden administration has made a compelling case that is better for the United States, for example, uh, to engage with Russia, to engage with China, to try to solve these transnational challenges like climate or the pandemic if we have our European allies and our Asian allies and other partners around the world at our side. That is far stronger in terms of an approach. Matt, I know you know Russia well, and we're going to get to that. But one of the questions, you know, came out in a Pew Research Center poll uh, is that many say the United States is a somewhat reliable partner, but they no longer see it as a model for democracy. Russia, of course, has been involved, you know, as a meddler in American elections in that process, and they may see that as a gain. But when it comes to that broad issue of how important it is that other nations look to the United States as a model of excellence when it comes to, you know, immigration and inclusion, being a security guarantor in the world, trying to help those in need around the world, standing for justice. Does it worry you that this, these Pew uh, uh, findings demonstrate real European doubt in the solvency of American democracy? Well, first of all, Steve, uh, you know, I talk to Europeans all the time. Uh, the message that I'm hearing very consistently is uh, enthusiasm for re-engaging with the United States at every level. Obviously, you know, some of the reduced engagement has been the reality of the pandemic. I'm someone who would literally, you know, be in Europe uh, 10 or a dozen times a year, and I haven't been for nearly two years at this point. So I think, you know, in some ways the timing is fortuitous. The president is going to be the sharp end uh, of the spear of the return to, you know, face-to-face -face engagement between Americans uh, and Europeans, and that's all to the good. But the second important point here is this is not about words. It's not about promises. It's not about abstractions. The president understands clearly and has said many times it's about solving problems that matter to people. So if you want to reassure Europeans that the alliance, that the transatlantic relationship is central to the way that Washington and Americans think about the world and the problems we have to face, start solving those problems and start doing it together. And so the, the White House message going out on this trip has been really consistent. It's the three seats, COVID, number one, climate, number two, a, a challenge Europeans are acutely aware of, and number three, China. And that is something Europeans have increasingly, I think, come to share the American view that this is the central geostrategic challenge of our time. Well, let me bring in Bruce Stokes, and he's just put out uh, some new data on the transatlantic relationship that the German Marshall Fund has published. It's fascinating. And Bruce, I sort of see in the data a desire, a pining, if you will, for the old transatlantic relationship, robust and real, but a wobbliness and a bit of doubt. Tell us about your findings. Well, I mean, what we found in the uh, uh, German Marshall Fund's Transatlantic Trends Survey was uh, a, a revival of faith in the United States. Um, uh, this was uh, reaffirmed by the Pew data that came out today that shows that the, the United States uh, has returned in the eyes of Europeans to the levels it was uh, during the Obama administration. Um, and uh, faith in the U.S. president has returned to levels of the Obama administration. Um, so um, uh, I agree with Matt in the sense that uh, I think there's an appetite both among publics in Europe and among elites, uh, among policymakers, uh, to find ways to cooperate with the United States. Now, I would, I would caution all 
policymakers that you also hear from fellow policymakers in Europe. Uh, a hesitancy, a um, distrust of the United States. Uh, will we change? I think these are legitimate concerns because we don't know what the future lies for the, uh, the politics of the United States, who will be president in three years. Nevertheless, the publics in Europe are back, and that should encourage uh, policymakers on both sides of the Atlantic to do what Matt is talking about, and that is working together to solve shared problems. Because I also ran a task force for the German Marshall Fund looking at what we could do together, and we came to the same conclusion that Matt just voiced, mm. which is if we want to re commit our publics to democracy and not to succumb to the temptation of authoritarianism. We have to solve the problems that uh, our publics identify as the problems they face. And if the transatlantic relationship can work together to solve those problems, this will benefit the transatlantic, European and American transatlantic relationship. Um, and it will benefit people's right. faith in democracy. But we need to solve problems for our people, and that's the major challenge we both face. Well, let me you know, let me ask you both here. We'll go to, we'll go to Matt and then Bruce. But but I, I'm fascinated by the fact, and I don't mean to be mean about this, but you know Barack Obama when he came in was such a popular president. Just by being Barack Obama, he sort of won the Nobel Peace Prize, right? The change in tone, you know, change in atmospherics. He won the Nobel Peace Prize just by being himself. And you sort of wonder right now, we're so early in the Biden administration, whether this honeymoon with Biden is one of expectations. So let me ask you the tough question. How could Joe Biden flub this up? What could go wrong? And let me start with Matt. And I'm going to, you know, just tail on. Matt, you know Vladimir Putin. You know the Russians. I mean, this is going to be a defining moment at the end of the trip. So uh, how could things go wrong? Well, I think one very real possibility, Steve, is that the meeting doesn't happen. So mm. we're, you know, a little less than a week out. Um, I don't think it's by accident that the meeting with Putin is at the tail end of a long agenda. Um, you have ongoing crises in and around Ukraine and Belarus. Uh, you have truly egregious treatment of uh, independent press and the opposition within Russia. Alexei Navalny being the most famous case, but, you know, by no means the only one. There are more than 300 people uh, that uh, Americans consider to be political prisoners in Russia. You have Americans uh, who are in custody uh, in, uh, by the Russian security state. Uh, and, of course, you have Russian hacking that is ongoing, both, uh, you know, private criminal uh, actions and state-sponsored mm. uh, cyber espionage and attacks on the United States. Any one of these not to mention traditional kinetic military episodes like these near misses when Russian jets overfly American uh, ships or, or pass nearby other American aircraft, et cetera. Any one of these could spiral into the kind of crisis that would be a perfectly rational reason to say, you know what, now's not the time for this meeting. Ruth, something really uh, hit me from your data that you put out from the German Marshall Fund. You know, it seemed to contradict each other, but would love to get your quick insights. And then I want to turn to Russia. But, but, you have a, a, a wonderful little pie chart of, of how American reliability is perceived by the nations you surveyed. Now, Turkey is in there, and Turkey is, you know, looks at, there's 23 percent. I mean, right now, there's not right. a love lost between Turkey and apparently Europe and Turkey and the U.S. and, right. and the distrust that exists. But 
Germany is only at 51 percent who believe right. America is reliable. Poland is all the way up at the top at 76 percent uh, in this pie chart. But then you flip over to something else that really interested me in your study. It says, how involved should the United States be in the defense of security in Europe? And there has been a 10-point jump between last year and this year in Germany. 69% of Germans think America should be involved uh, uh, more deeply in the defense and security of Europe. Also a 10-point jump from 45% to 55% in France. So I guess the, the, the conclusion I have is the Germans are saying on one hand, they don't really... You know, a lot of them are saying 51 percent America is not reliable, but they do have an expectation and want more. So what am I, uh, uh, you know, are those inconsistent? What's going on there? Well, the, the uh, reliability of the U.S., the numbers are a little higher in the Pew survey. So, you know, every survey is a little bit different. Uh, we know from past surveys that um, uh, Germans expected America to come to its uh, defense if Russia ever invaded although the Germans were unwilling to go to the defense of their own NATO allies if other NATO allies were defended. So there's a little contradiction in the German perception on these things. But I think the real, and Matt can speak to this, I think the logical interpretation of why the Germans and the French uh, would, would, exp would expect U.S. Uh, to help support them uh, militarily and want them to mm. is what has happened with Russia over the last few years. Uh, and especially in the last year. The concern about Russia, it seems to me, is growing in Western Europe, and that's why uh, you, you see this change. Well, let's jump to Russia. Matt, um, you had a very interesting article that just ran. I'll tell our audience you can find it in War on the Rocks. And in this article, it's sort of a comprehensive review of, of Russia's portfolio in the world and, and the portfolio of U.S.-Russia relations. And if I can, I think the bottom line to your article is take off the rose-colored glasses and see things as they are and just realize business is going to be tough. As you kind of look at that and that potential of that Putin meeting, one, am I getting the reading of your article right? And as you see things like Ukraine, as you see things like cyber attacks and the solar winds attack, what are the best you know, ways to maneuver that relationship between two really important leaders when clearly um, I think there are going to be expectations that Biden is going to you know, try and achieve something? Yeah, thanks very much, Steve. Uh, so, so in that piece, uh, you know, the tagline really was just uh, only reset your expectations mm. uh, that, you know, don't have any illusions that this is going to be the kind of handshake, signing ceremony, friendship, reset, transformation uh, that many U.S. presidents have promised on the relationship with Russia. The good news is the one person who needs to understand that understands it perfectly, and that's Joe Biden. He has gone into this sending a very clear message uh, that the reason for him to meet with Vladimir Putin is that he understands that is necessary to try to put some guardrails on Russia's aggressive and destabilizing behavior. Uh, that, to Bruce's point, is something that will be very reassuring and very welcome, I think, for America's key European allies. But at the same time, uh, Biden is not introducing a laundry list of hoped-for achievements in uh, some kind of renewed U.S.-Russian partnership uh, because he recognizes that isn't going to happen. He's talking about a more stable and more predictable relationship. So how do you get there? Um, I see a couple of major deliverables, neither of which is guaranteed, uh, but, but should be possible if this is a reasonably successful summit meeting. The indications are that, that it could be. 
Number one is a strategic stability dialogue. The basic question here is having extended the last uh, major nuclear arms control treaty standing, that's the new START agreement, for five years uh, from this past January, so it'll last till February of 2026. Uh, what comes after it, right? 2026 is actually not that far away. Uh, and there are a lot of new issues, especially new technologies like cyber, which you mentioned earlier, that have a bearing on strategic stability, that is on the risk of escalation to open war between the world's two largest nuclear powers, Russia and the United States. That's issue number one. Issue number two is, can we rebuild from some of the wreckage of the basic diplomatic infrastructure? Literally, as we speak, the Russian ambassador is not in his embassy in Washington. The U.S. ambassador is not in his embassy in, in Moscow. Uh, and frankly, both staffs have been stripped down to a bare minimum. Uh, most consulates at this point have been shuttered. We're not able to do basic functions like citizen support services, issuing visas. You know, the relationship is at an absolute bare bones minimum, worse than most of the Cold War. Mm. Uh, and rebuilding from that, I think, would be both, both helpful and a realistic, clear-eyed goal for the summit. Bruce, let me ask you a question. If we just scratch beneath the surface a little bit and look at not just the rah-rah, you know, what can go well, but what some of the tensions are. You know, one of them comes to mind um, is Afghanistan. Uh, Europeans are frustrated that America is talking about just leaving Afghanistan with very little consultation with them. They've been our allies, you know, right there next to us in Afghanistan, and they don't see themselves part of the equation. That's one. Two, uh, property rights, you know, the intellectual property rights side of the COVID crisis. You know, Joe Biden may be going over with half a billion uh, vaccines to help give the developing world. But many Europeans were critical of President Biden saying, let's waive intellectual property rights in this area. They say that's the wrong way to achieve this. And you, you're one of the most knowledgeable people I know on trade. Joe Biden still has not removed some of the uh, uh, trade provisions and, and sanctions provisions that would put, put in place by the Trump administration. So how toxic are those lower level issues? And do you think any of them will bubble to the surface during this, this trip? My guess is that on uh, uh, the tariffs, that uh, may get mentioned in passing, but we have uh, initiated a process of discussions of how we might be able to resolve that issue. So we've kicked the ball down the road. I mean, the real problem in that is it's about overcapacity and the Chinese ability to produce more than they can consume. And uh, the fear by our domestic industry and labor force that they will uh, export more to Europe and then the Europeans export more to us. And that's why we put tariffs on the Europeans. There are ways to try to deal with this, what are called uh, tariff quotas uh, that, that you might be able to, but the Europeans would have to agree to that. I mean, the reality is we can't get the Chinese to reduce their overcapacity. And uh, after years of talking about this, the Trump administration finally acted and politically, it's very difficult for Joe Biden to say to the steel industry and to the steel workers, uh, we're not going to afford you this level of protection anymore. Um, uh, but you're right, it's a neuralgic issue with the Europeans for understandable reasons. Uh, but it, it's not at all clear how we resolve that. On Afghanistan, I mean, there's a little bit of chutzpah here. I mean, it's true, from my understanding, that we we didn't negotiate with the Europeans about how the pullout. We just announced it. And that the um, excuse given by the Biden people is, well, they should have known what we were going to do because Biden talked about it in the campaign. Well, frankly, that's not the way to treat your allies. On the other hand, uh, 
the Germans in Afghanistan had to be guarded in part by the Americans because they couldn't guard themselves. So uh, there's a bit of a chutzpah here about what what they expect should expect from us uh, as we make decisions. Um, and uh, I think one of the interesting issues you didn't mention is a question of what happens in the Middle East, because I did a series of interviews with what are now current Biden administration officials before the election, and they all said to a person that uh, we're going to get, we're going to continue the pullout from the Middle East. We're, we're going to follow the, the Trump plan, game plan on that, and uh, we just expect the Europeans to step up and do more. Well, uh, that uh, uh, GMF survey uh, asked Europeans if they wanted their country to do more right. in the Middle East. And uh, the response was in the single digits among people who said they wanted to do more, you know, 6%, 7%, 9%. Um, and uh, a third said, no, we want to do less. So there's expectations here of the Americans that the Europeans can pick up some of the burden in the Middle East right. that is right. not supported at all by European publics. Matt, let me get one last question into you. Um, and my question is going to be on Russia. We know and, you know, all of us have talked about what drives the foreign policy behavior of other countries. And very often it's rooted in domestic policy and domestic politics. We don't usually give that much airtime. But I guess my question to you is if we most wanted to influence Vladimir Putin and Russia and put Russia on a different course that was more of a global contributor to peace and stability, what would you do? You know, it's a great and it's a very timely question, Steve, not only because of the summit, but because uh, this year is the 100th anniversary of Andrei Sakharov, uh, the great Soviet uh, nuclear scientist, inventor of the Soviet hydrogen bomb uh, and dissident. And, you know, one of his main messages is, uh, was and still relevant today that a country that abuses the rights of its own citizens is inherently going to be a threat to world peace. Um, so the good news is I think the Biden administration understands that there is a linkage between the way that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin behaves towards its own people and the way that Russia poses threats to the United States and our allies in the world. The bad news is we have limited instruments to change Putin's behavior at home. The essential calculus is we can impose as much pressure as we're able to do. And there's quite a lot of pressure that we can. There are things to get right. our own house in order in terms of not letting, you know, dark oligarch money uh, into American markets that right. we can do that we should do for moral reasons. But if Putin views those things as existential survival issues for his regime, there's almost no level of leverage that's going to get him to agree to say, OK, now I'm going to do something that hurts me. What is more likely is the kind of engagement that President Biden is talking about, if successful, developing a nuclear arms control strategic stability dialogue, a dialogue on cyber, right. restoring some of the basic ongoing diplomatic contacts, we begin to look a little bit more like times in the Cold War where American presidents mm -hmm. were successful at right. getting dissidents out of Russia because the Russians had a stake in the relationship. And I think that's what Biden understands. Well, listen, thank you. This is one of those times when you realize I really wish I had an hour-long show. What a great conversation. Bruce Stokes of the German Marshall Fund and Matthew Rojansky of the Wilson Center. Really appreciate you helping to explore this question of Biden and Europe. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. So what's the bottom line? President Joe Biden keeps saying America's back as if the world stood still for the past four years waiting for it. Of course, there's a difference with American diplomacy now. Everybody can feel it. His team have already engaged in some of the tough issues out there, like Israel-Palestine. But everybody knows that America has a lot of issues to sort out at home. And there are lingering doubts that America is really fully 100 percent back. 
France and Germany said many times in response to Trump's bluster that Europe would have to consider going it alone on many fronts, and that'll probably be a strong current of European thinking from now on. At the same time, it's cheaper and easier to work together on climate change and on cyber threats and whoever they consider rogue nations together. Ironically, the challenges posed by Russia and China may force the U.S. and Europe more tightly together, even if it's not the sturdy alliance it used to be. And that's the bottom line.